As we continue the study of the book of Psalms that we've been doing for, I guess, about 10 weeks now, I thought it'd be helpful to stop at the beginning of this message and just rehearse the subtitle for a second because we're calling it the Psalms Praise in the Day of Trouble and Prosperity. And we haven't talked about why that is for a while and some of you are coming back and some of you are brand new. So I thought I might stop and do that. We're calling it that because the book of Psalms, if you're familiar with it, is a book of worship, fundamentally. And as such, it's full of prayers and and poems and hymns and songs and whatnot. But it's full of prayers and poems and hymns and songs that we believe, as Christians, are written by God. Now, we understand that a human being had the pen in his hand. We get that, really. But we believe that the Holy Spirit so empowered and took hold of these people that what they wrote to us contains His words, shows forth their personalities and their circumstances, but they're really His words. And so it's a book of worship full of poems and hymns and prayers and songs and whatnot that are written by God through people who, as we've discovered as we've been studying through them, went through all the same things in life that we go through, even though they lived a few thousand years ago. And that is a fact. It's amazing how relevant this book is. It is the most preached from book in the history of the Christian church. Why? Because it contains the Word of God written through people in the midst of their greatest lows and highs, in the midst of their greatest failures and successes, in the midst of their greatest defeats and victories, in the midst of their greatest sorrows, and in the midst of their greatest joys, that is to say, in the midst of trouble and prosperity. And so what then, practically speaking, do the Psalms do? Well, they teach us how to faithfully praise God and worship God and live for God when? In our days of greatest trouble and in our days of greatest prosperity and truth be known, we get both in life, don't we? And he designs it that way. It's all good. So as we come today to Psalm 62, we find David who is the psalmist in a day of trouble. That's plain. David is being attacked. Now, we don't know who is attacking David. We don't know how they're attacking David. We don't know with what they're attacking David. In other words, what are they using to attack David? And actually, that is awesome. That's part of God's design for this psalm for us as well. And why do I say that? Because if we did know the exact circumstance, we might be tempted to limit the teaching just to that. But in reality, we can take the teaching of Psalm 62 and apply it to any kind of attack that any of us sustain. So physical attack, that's a disease, for example. Spiritual attack, intellectual attack, relational attack, professional attack, financial attack. Psalm 62 speaks loudly and clearly, no matter what kind of an attack. And here's what it teaches us to do, bottom line. David comes to us in Psalm 62 and says, all right, let me just give it to you straight. Okay, so here's the deal. When you're attacked... Trust in God alone for your deliverance. That's it. And that doesn't mean that God won't bring your deliverance by means of the police or a counselor or a lawyer or a doctor or a medication or some person in your life. That may be the case. God might even give you an epiphany and use your own intelligence and brilliance that, by the way, is all on loan from Him anyway. It's all a gift or the resources that He provides for you or whatever by which to deliver you. But when it comes to deliverance, God only can be trusted. God only can be trusted. And here's how David's going to do this. So he's going to come to us and go, okay, so there's my bottom line. And to prove it to you, I'm going to show you God, and then I'm going to show you, well, you and everyone else. So he goes, God, and then man. Not convinced? Okay, so let me show you God again, and then man. Still not convinced, and then he ends with God. He makes a comparative study between people and God and says, 
do you see it? Do you get it? Because you really can only trust God. So what is he after? He's after the delusion that all of us want to believe. And here's why we all want to believe it. Because if it's true, then we can take charge of our own issues and we can become the answers to our own problems and we can bring all of these attacks that we experience in life to an end how and when we want to do it. In other words, we can be God for ourselves. Okay, listen, David is after the delusion that you and I are our own deliverers and that we can trust in ourselves to do that or in somebody else maybe that we can employ on our behalf to do that or in the ways of this world or in the wealth of this world. He's going to blow it all up by showing us God and man, God and man, and then God. And he's going to say, but you can trust God. Now, he's not going to do it all the time how you want him to. And he may not do it all the time when you want him to, but you can trust him even with that. So with all that said, Psalm 62 begins like this. As Didi read, it says to the choir master, according to Jedithun, which is kind of a sweet name, I'm not going to lie. And you might be wondering who Jedithun is, or maybe you don't care. But if you are wondering, Jedithun was one of David's three primary musicians listed in 1 Chronicles 16. And so David writes the psalm, and he thinks, all right, so which guy should I give it to to put it to music? I'm going Jedithun this time. He got to put it to music, and then David brought it to the choir master. So to the choir master, according to Jedithun, a psalm of David, and then David begins with this in verse 1. He says, for God, what? Because this is a repeating refrain. It goes all the way through the psalm. You're going to hear for God alone, or for God only, or only God, and for God alone again. He's making a point here. He's saying your trust goes there. David says, for God alone, my soul waits. Another theme. But how does his soul wait? And before you, you know, you've read it, but before you just think that through for a second, I want you to compare it to the way that your soul waits when you're under attack. Because David says, my soul waits in silence. And I'm going, man, that's just weird, right? I mean, does your soul wait in silence, does it? Think about that. He doesn't say, my soul waits in anxiety. My soul waits in sleeplessness. My soul waits in anger. My soul is starting to wait in resentment because this is taking a long time. You know what? My soul is now beginning to wait in bitterness. He doesn't go anywhere near any of those things. For God alone, he says, my soul waits in silence. Why is that, David? Because from him comes my salvation. He alone, David adds, is my rock. And that is a very important concept. That's so much part of the comparison that David is making. God is a rock. <laughs> and he's going to tell us what we are here in a few minutes, but I'll preview it for you. Uh, we're just air. And you can't grab air. You can't cling to air. You can't build a house on air. You can't build a life on air. But you can on a rock. For God alone, my soul waits in silence, David says. For from Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, that into which I can authentically run into for shelter. And as a result, David says, I shall not be greatly shaken. He doesn't say that he won't be shaken at all, but what's kind of cool is as we progress through this psalm, eventually he will say that. 
So it's like in the midst of this storm, as David is writing this psalm, he's speaking to his own soul, which we'll see in a second as well. And as he does, even though the storm continues to rage, the battering that he's receiving continues, and typically that wears us down. He's gaining in strength. It's remarkable. So he's shown us God, so now he's going to compare us. He's going to show us man. Speaking to his attackers, David says this in verse 3. He says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him again and again and again and again like a leaning wall that's about to collapse? I'm wearing out. Or a tottering fence that's about to topple over. So what is David afraid of? He's afraid that left to himself, what's going to happen? He's going to implode. Why is David afraid that he's going to implode? Because he's a person. And just like everyone else who is a person... He's limited. And the reality is we're all of us limited. The older you get, the more limited you realize that you are, even though you increase in a lot of capacities. Like I'm better in a lot of ways, and I realize the more I know, the more limited I really am. We are limited physically. We are limited intellectually. We are limited emotionally. We only have so much capacity. But that's not the limitation that he lays hold of. He could have, but he goes right to the one that is our greatest limitation. We're limited morally. David says in verse 4 that they, meaning these men who are battering him again and again, only plan to thrust him down from his high position. And again, what is his high position? He's the king of Israel. If he says your head's going to be cut off, that's what happens next. His word is law. He has wealth. He has power. He has fame. He has armies. He doesn't have to consult with anybody. He just says, and it happens. If ever there was a kind of a person who might be tempted to think that they could become for themselves their own answers to their own problems, their own safeguards against attacks in this life, it would be somebody who's a king, wouldn't you think? And yet the king himself is coming to us and going, let me just tell you, I have all of these advantages that maybe you don't have. Okay, fine. Yeah, none of them work. Trust in God alone. David says, they, these, these evildoers, if you will, who are battering him, only plan to thrust him down from his high position. And then here it is. He says, they take pleasure in falsehood. And here's how they do it. They bless David with their mouths, but inwardly, they curse him. And I read that and I thought, how ironic. And here's why. Because David, as the king of Israel, if you know his life, while his armies were off in battle where he should have been, took the wife of one of his most loyal and faithful and valiant warriors. And then when she became pregnant, he brought her husband back from the battlefield, this man Uriah. He sent a note saying, oh, I'd like an update from the battlefront, and, and I'd like you to send Uriah home to bring it to me. Why? Because he wanted an update from the battlefront? No, because he wanted Uriah to go home with the hopes that Uriah would think the baby belonged to him. Get the idea? And then when that didn't happen because Uriah was too good of a man, he refused to indulge in the pleasures of home when all the other guys were out in the field. David sent him with a sealed letter back to the commander of his army. That sealed letter was his own death warrant. And he gave very specific instructions. I want you to put Uriah in the front lines of battle. I want you to, when the battle is at its fiercest, I want you to have the soldiers around him withdraw so that he's struck down and killed. Is that ambiguous? I think that's pretty clear. 
Guys, in describing his own attackers, David has also described himself, and I'm going to go further, and it's a little uncomfortable maybe, but he's described the rest of us as well in greater or lesser terms. We all are subject to the same weaknesses. We're all made of the same substance. We are all prideful. We are all selfish. We're all passionate and are overrun by our passions at times. It's amazing how the most brilliant people do the dumbest things. And then when we point at them and go, what a stupid thing, we indict ourselves in the same breath. And just like David, I think we're real quick to point out the so-called evil of the people who are making our lives difficult. I think we're also real slow to to realize that, you know, I think I've probably done that to somebody at least in the past. Maybe I'm doing it now. We're just people. But God is not like us. He's different. And that is so much the point of the whole psalm. The foundation from which David is calling us to trust God is the difference. And it is marked between us. And so now shifting from man to God again. In verse 5, David says essentially the same thing that he said at the beginning of the psalm. But he tweaks it a little bit. So he says this, he says, for God alone, so there's alone again, but this time now he says, oh my soul. So what is he doing? In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the attack, in the midst of the battering, in the midst of the fears and concerns and all of these other things, he is preaching a sermon to his own soul, by which he's gaining in strength. He says, for God alone, oh my soul, I'm going to talk to you about truth. I'm going to take my eyes off of all of the stuff that I'm obsessing about and that's overwhelming me and crushing me down and I'm going to place them on you. For God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence, which does not mean that we should not let our requests be made known unto God as the Apostle Paul makes clear to us and commands us to do and as David in a second will affirm when he tells us to pour our hearts out to the Lord. But what else does Paul say in that same verse? And in fact... In the first part of the verse, he says, be anxious for what? Some things, because I mean, there are some things that are legitimately huge. Now, be anxious for nothing. But by prayer and petition, let your requests be made known unto God that the peace of God that passes all understanding might fill your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, look, you can give it to the Lord He can be authentically trusted. Can he be trusted to deliver you how you want? Not always. Can he be trusted to deliver you when you want? Won't always happen that way. But can he be trusted to deliver you in the best way? At the best time, yes. He's saying give it to the Lord and then wait patiently before him. Let him have it. And he say, you know, <laughs> that's nice and that sounds really great and everything. Uh, but, you know, maybe you get, need to get to know me, Tom, because that's just not really me. And um, to which I would respond, that's nice. And maybe you need to get to know me, too, because that's not really me either. That is a hard thing to do, at least for me. It really is. Uh, I'm a kind of a wound up tight kind of guy. Probably you can't tell that. But, um, but I really am. And I come from a long line of people who are wound up tight. Now, they are amazing people. They are humble people. They are godly people. They're generous people. They're loving and caring people. And in addition to that, they're tough people. 
They're hardworking people. They are pick yourself up and dust yourself off people. They are keep a stiff upper lip people. They are life is hard, quit your complaining and get back to work kind of people. And I want to stop for a second and say, I'm immensely grateful for all of that. And I think this world could use a little more of it, quite frankly. But if that forms you in such a way as to delude you into thinking that that means I've got to be the answers to all of my problems, that my hard work and my determination, and we need to work hard and be determined, I'm not passing anything off. But I'm going to be my own deliverer. Or maybe I can rope somebody else into this deal. Or, or maybe it's what my hard work and determination can produce for me that can then become my deliverer. Whatever the case may be, if that's the deal, then what happens is it leaves you anxious and stressed and sleepless and exhausted. And if you can relate to that, then this is a great psalm for you. And here's why it does that. Because you're just a person. It's okay. We need to live within our limitations. And we need to let God be God and entrust to Him what we can, which is everything. So God is not like us. He's different. And again, David says, for God alone, my soul, let me instruct you, he says, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. And this time he says, I shall not be shaken. Last time I shall not be greatly shaken. He's getting stronger, though the storm continues. On God, he says, rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. Talk about a foundation. And my refuge is God. And so what does David say? He says, trust in Him as long as it looks like you can trust in Him. You know, I mean, as you survey the circumstances of your life. No. He says, trust in Him at all times. By implication, by the way, that means even when, as you look around at your life, you go, good grief. It sure doesn't look like He can be trusted. You learn to walk with Him in the dark. You put your hand in His, you can't see a thing, you follow. And He gains great glory from that. And we learn quite a bit about who the rock is and who the air is when we do that too. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people, He says, and pour out your heart before Him. For God is a refuge for us, but people, including ourselves, are not a refuge for us. And so now shifting back to man, David says, for these people, those people of low estate are but a breath. They're just air. You can't cling to them. You can't grab them. You can't do anything with them. And you say, well, what about the people of high estate? Because it seems like, you know, I don't know, they might be rock-like. He's like, well, let's deal with them then too. Those people of low estate are but a breath, he says. Those people of high estate are just a delusion. And the idea is, so is also everyone in between. He's capturing the whole of humanity. He says, in the balances of a scale, they go up. And why is that? Because they have no weight. They are together lighter than a breath. And so David adds, puts no trust, he says, in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. Now, what does that mean? He's saying there are devices by which, through dishonesty even, 
we seek to insulate ourselves from the threats of life, from the attacks of life, from the perils of life, from the challenges of life. He's like, hey, you know what? Don't put any trust in any of that either. That's just the stuff of people. It's things that we come up with. And then he says, and if riches increase, set not your heart on them either, for they too are transient. They're no more permanent than we are. And then David ends this psalm by once again returning to God. He's shown us God and then man and then God and then man. And he says, okay, closing argument. I give you God. He says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. Once with his ears, once with his heart. If it doesn't make it to the heart, it doesn't make it to the life. What does the Bible teach? That from out of the heart flow all the issues of life. You know, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Oh, good grief. Really? I mean, it doesn't say a lot of good things about us if that's the case, right? Just drive across town, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, and the things that it utters tells us something about us and about our need for Christ. The idea here is the message needs to penetrate to our hearts, which controls the whole of our lives and, frankly, is the part of us that is undone by the attack, isn't it? And it needs to grab hold of us and transform us and hear. He says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, and here's the message, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, faithful, unfailing love for whom? For His people. For those for whom His Son died. Oh, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to the Lord, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you, O Lord, will render to a man according to his work. It means you will balance the scale out in the end. You'll vindicate me. You will bring justice. So what do you do when you're under attack then? Physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, relationally, whatever. The whole list, it all works. Here's what you don't do. You don't put trust in yourself. You don't put trust in other people. You don't put trust in your enemies. You're like, why would you even throw that out there? Because if you let the fear of your enemies drive you through life, what are you doing? You're putting greater faith in them than in your God. And you don't put trust in the ways and the wealth of this world. It's transient. It's air. But instead, you place all your faith in God. Because He alone is a rock. And nothing and no one else is. And maybe now you're thinking, well, that sounds nice, but, you know, how do I do that? <laughs> you do that by building your life upon the rock that is Jesus Christ and the sum total of His teachings, which is God's Word. It's interesting, we meet on Tuesday mornings to, as a staff to pray together and we kind of do our personal worship and then different staff members lead the time. And I won't tell you who did it this week, but she did a brilliant job. And if I used her name, it would be Sarah Sherman. But, um, but she did a great job. And I was getting a little paranoid because I, I, I was taking notes, you know, on my phone. Like, and I'm like, finally I just said, you know, Sarah, I'm not like texting somebody right now. I'm, I'm actually taking notes. That's what I'm assuming all of you are doing too right now. But... Um, <laughs> But she mentioned a pa passage of Scripture that I wrote down. I thought, that's good. And then I was talking to somebody else later in the week, and he, he mentioned this same passage of Scripture. And I thought, okay, so I'm going to read it to you. Jesus, at the end of his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, how does he end it? 
He says this, Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. There it is. And then what happened? Because it inevitably happens. The storm came. And the rain fell, he said, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why did it not fall? Because it had been founded on the rock of a real and authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. That manifests itself how? By internal and external obedience, by the power of His Spirit to what? His Word. But he continues, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand and the rain fell. It's the same storm and the floods came. It's the same language and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And then Matthew says that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In other words, he was teaching them as one who while he spoke was literally speaking the word of God as it's coming out of his mouth, as opposed to somebody who goes and studies the Word of God and says, okay, here's what I think it says. And why would he not, when he speaks, speak the Word of God when the whole of the Bible, the entirety of the gospel comes to us and says, hey, do you know who Jesus is? Because he is God. He's the invisible God who has entered into this planet in the most tangible, visible understandable form possible and he's come into the world to rescue us from all of the ways we trust in ourselves, and we trust in others and we trust in our ability to maneuver and and we trust in wealth and we fall down in idolatry and bend our whole lives around things that are not God and that ultimately are not trustworthy but empty he lays down his life to pay the debt we owe God for all of that that He might claim us and through faith in Him make us sons and daughters of the King. And what do sons and daughters of the King do? They sit at the feet of their Father and they learn how to live as sons and daughters of the King. What is that? It's the wisdom of the Bible. We learn how to build a life according to the wisdom of the founder of life Himself. And we find that wisdom in his word. And so you begin by building your life on the rock that is Jesus and his teachings. And then when the storms of life come, what do you do? Because you're prepared to do it. All of a sudden you have the content. David had the content to preach a sermon to his soul because the word of the Lord was his delight. It's the foundation of his life. So then when the storm of life comes, you start preaching to your own soul refusing to believe the lies that all of your circumstances are showing or, or to give way to all of those things as if to say you're alone in this. And instead, speaking to yourself of the goodness of your God and all of the reasons why you can pour your heart out to Him and then in faith leave it with Him, doing all you know how to do, got it, but trusting Him for your deliverance. And in that, there is peace and there's rest. I wait quietly. I wait silently before the Lord, confident that He hears me and that in His way and in His timing, but that's best, He will bring deliverance. So how are you being attacked and who or what are you trusting in? 
Because the Lord's going, hey, um, <clears throat> there's a rock over here, and, uh, and I've made myself available to you through Jesus, and come have it. It's all yours by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the rock that is Christ. We thank you that there is an immovable, unchangeable, all-powerful, all-merciful one. It was not left us to ourselves and our own devices or to the devices of others, but who for forever has redeemed us and who has forever purposes working their ways out in our lives, even in the storms, for they teach us of you. They humble us and they draw us to you. And so then, Lord, I pray as we come to this table in particular that we prepare our hearts by repenting of our sins and all the things that, that we have trusted in or are trusting in. Lord, that we might realize that we're just people, but that you are God and that through faith in Jesus, we belong to you. So inspire faith, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we do come to the Lord's table, I just want to remind you that this is a distinctly Christian table, and that might sound a little off-putting if you're going, oh, so it's exclusivistic. And actually, it is, um, but it's exclusivistic because it's authentic. In other words, the Scriptures come around this table and they say, listen, don't come and receive with your hands and, and, and take into your stomach that which you haven't authentically, spiritually received in your heart and, and taken into your life. But instead, consider Christ and who He is, and what He offers to you. He came to you, too. And He's willing to take and wash you clean and make you new. So if you're not a believer, do that. If you are, then by all means, this table is set for you. And you're commanded to come to it. And to come to it having first, you know, spoken with the Lord about maybe the things that you've taken up and have become an idol again. And I mean, that's part of the problem. You know, Calvin says the human heart is an idol factory. It means we just keep manufacturing them. You know, I get rid of that one, but there's a new one. And then I get rid of that one, but then there's a new one. It's amazing. It's like a, you know, it's like the Ford assembly line. We need to stop the assembly line and ask forgiveness for those things and reaffirm our trust in the one who is our God. Ask Him to forgive us and then come forward and receive the emblems of forgiveness, which are emblems not of shame, but of freedom and of joy. So the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And when he comes again, he balances all the scales. He makes everything right. So I'm going to pray, and then when you're ready, you guys can come forward, okay? Father, we thank you for this table. We thank you for the one who, at the expense of his life, has laid it before us this day and made it available to us by faith. And so now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would meet with us, that, that you would let us know what we need to confess, and, and then that you would encourage us in our hearts and in our souls. Lord, that we might know and then go out from here and exhibit the joy of those who are your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.